Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. This is your host, Joe Sibilia. And joining me today is a 28-time Emmy Award winner, a former NBC sportscaster, currently a contributor at CNN. And that, of course, is the legendary Bob Costas. Bob, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Joe. You know, it's interesting to me that someone who's not yet 30 would be deeply interested in the Friars Club <laughs> and want to talk about the Friars Club. <laughs> I you am know, in- when, when I... When I became a, a member at the Friars, I think I was maybe 42 years old, and I lowered the average age by entering from 88 to about 86. <laughs> uh, so I, I am simply stunned but happy that someone of your age is interested in this stuff. Well, Bob, you sort of started off where I was going to start off, and that was how exactly you did become involved with the Friars Club to begin with. Well, you know, I think I always had an affinity, as you apparently do, for that kind of old school uh, show business, old school comedy. Uh, I think I was pretty well immersed in it, even though I came from a different generation. Uh, I was very familiar with it. And through sports and then also through the later program, I became very friendly with a group of what were then thought of as younger comics, Richard Lewis and Dennis Miller and Billy Crystal, and they were all willing to sponsor me uh, to be part of the Friars Club. And I reveled in the idea that you could walk in randomly for lunch, and almost every day until he left uh, this mortal coil, just to your right as you walk through the archway, there would be Henny Youngman, and you were easily able to tell what he had had for lunch by just glancing at his tie and perhaps (laughs) his shirt. And he would uh, greet people with the same stock lines. But they were funny because the whole idea of Henny Youngman is funny. The whole idea of those guys, including many that were only regionally well-known or never rose quite to the level of fame of of some of the people who might have shared membership in the Friars with them, the Corbett Monicas of the world, the Freddie Romans, very active in the club through the years. Uh, Stewie Stone, who was uh, an official of the club and uh, was often the uh, toastmaster or roastmaster at Friars Club Roasts. And he was as funny as some of the comedians that were nationally well-known. It was just kind of an attitude that prevailed there. And having grown up in New York and having been some sort of student of show business, I got what that attitude was. Where... Did your love first come from for uh, the old stars? Was it from watching television as a kid, seeing people like Jackie Gleason, watching Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show? It was all those things. I grew up in New York on Long Island. Um, And even though uh, it's way before cable for anyone, no matter where you were, there were a wider variety of choices in New York than in most markets. You had Channel 2, which was CBS, Channel 4, which was NBC, Channel 7, which was ABC. But you also had the independent channels, 5, 9, and 11, plus Channel 13, which was public television. And 5, 9, and 11 is where you got Soupy Sales. That's where you got the Three Stooges. That's where you got wrestling. 
Channel 11 is where you got the Yankees on WPIX. Channel 9 is where you got the Mets when they came into existence in 1962. Um, did I mention Soupy Sales? Soupy must have been on, you know, every day of when course. he came over. Soupy was on uh, one of those independent stations. And Channel 9 ran the Million Dollar Movie. The Million Dollar Movie came on at 7 o'clock every night. And it was the same movie for a week. So Monday through Friday, five times. Then Saturday, back-to-back matinee, same thing Sunday. So in theory, if a kid, like me in this case, wanted to watch King Kong or parts of it nine times in a week, he did. (laughs) Uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Double Indemnity, all those things, constantly. And it it was seeping in. I watched Joe Franklin on Channel 9, uh, late at night. Um, and I always wondered, even when I was 10 or 11 years old, geez, can't this, can he get any really well-known guests? <laughs> it always seems like some guy who's like a, like a stand-in on a show that's going to close in about a week off Broadway. <laughs> but nonetheless, he made, he made it work. He filled the hour, uh, sponsored by New New Nuco. So, <laughs> and Martin you know, Paints, it ain't just pain. That's correct. That is that is 100% correct. I, I will so, I will tell uh, you, Bob, that I am a, also a big Joe Franklin fan, uh, which shows you that right. I really have no life. But I went to go see Conan O'Brien a few years ago. My one brush with Conan O'Brien right. during a Q&A session was I was ex- extrapolating about my love for all the late night greats, including Joe Franklin. And he cuts me off and says, no one cares about uh-huh. Joe Franklin. And the whole audience just laughs at me. <laughs> I, I, I thought there was more of a Joe Franklin uh, contingency in this world, but thankfully uh, you're around uh, and you too well, appreciate it. In, in your generation, I would say that, that he polls beneath 1% in recognition. <laughs> but probably those who recognize him, his approval rate among that small coterie is extremely high. And I would have expected that Conan, who has a good sense of the history of all this stuff, I would have expected that Conan would appreciate that well you mentioned conan and you have the distinction of being on conan's first ever late yeah. night show you did a great bit mm-hmm. where it was your show later and you were interviewing one of the angry trees and one of the munchkins when you did that first conan o'brien show did you think that conan would rise to the level of stardom in the world of late night that he eventually would very honestly no you know he had written for the harvard lampoon he had written for Saturday Night Live. There was no question that he was funny. And there was no question that he was smart. And I could tell even on very short acquaintance that he was a really nice guy. You know, some comics are neurotic. And even if even if they have decency at their core, they have a difficult time in some cases uh, expressing that. You could tell what a good guy Conan was. But in the early stages, uh, you know, he had no real performing background. And his nervousness and discomfort showed. And if NBC had not been patient with him, we would have lost out on one of the greatest ever in late night. Because it wasn't just that Conan was good. He was distinctively good. Uh, What he did as it went along evolved into something that only Conan O'Brien could do. He's one of my all-time favorites. But that first show, Joe, to be honest with you, I didn't know how, to, how many more shows there would be. Um, John Goodman was one of the first guests, so that was a good get. You know, John was at, uh, at the peak of his fame at that time, or pretty close to it. Uh, and the bit that you mentioned was 
that I was doing the later show, which I did between 1988 and 94. And the lineup initially was Johnny Carson, David Letterman. Then I would come on with my little show at 1.30 Eastern time. Uh, and so Conan had slipped into Letterman's slot after David went to CBS and Leno got the Tonight Show. So it was Leno, Conan, and then me for a short time in 93 and 94 before I left later uh, in 1994. So it was natural that there would be promos for what was upcoming. So we just staged our own promo. And the idea was that I was interviewing the two surviving cast members of The Wizard of Oz. One was a munchkin and the other was, as you said, a very angry tree. The bit was written by Louis C.K. It's Louis C.K. who's in the tree. Louis really? C.K. is free. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's yeah. <laughs> so much history in one show, in one night. Yourself, Louis C.K., uh, Conan, of course, Robert Smigel, uh, the head writer at the time. It, it and the creator of Triumph. That's the right. Come on, one of the greatest bits in history. You were mentioning the lineup. It was yourself, and before you, Letterman, and then before Letterman, it was Johnny Carson. What yeah. influence did Letterman have on you getting the 130 time slot with your show later? More than I realized at first, because apparently David said to Dick Ebersol, who had co-created Saturday Night Live with Lorne Michaels, then gone off and done some other things, Friday night videos and Saturday night main event uh, before wrestling took uh, an ugly turn uh, a few years after that when it was still good natured fun. And then he became the head of NBC Sports during a glorious era all those Olympics and uh, we still had baseball and the NBA on NBC in the nineties during the Michael Jordan era. Uh, Dick was named at least once, maybe twice as the most powerful man in all of sports uh, by the sporting news. when they used to put out a, a top 100 rankings of people in, in sports. And he was one of the most influential people of his era in television, not just sports television. So apparently uh, Letterman says, to Ebersol, you know, I was listening to Bob do his Sunday night radio show. I used to have this syndicated radio show before everything exploded on cable, before there was Sunday night football, before there was Sunday night baseball, before there was all sports talk radio in most of the country. I did this two-hour syndicated show on Sunday nights, which was a fallow period for sports. And a lot of the biggest stations in the country that carried all their local teams, they didn't have any sports programming. So they picked up the show and it was on more than 300 stations it was called Costas coast to coast. And apparently Letterman would just be tooling around new Canaan, Connecticut. He liked to drive his car sometimes aimlessly, apparently. <laughs> and he was listening to it from time to time. And he liked it. And he said to Eversall, listen, if, if Bob can make Bart Starr interesting for an hour, no offense to the Hall of Fame quarterback of the Packers, but a somewhat stoic man. If, if, if he can make Bart Starr interesting for an hour, why couldn't he talk to anybody? And apparently, I think Dick had been thinking about this for a while, but that apparently kind of affirmed in his head that it was the right idea. Uh, and he was very close with Brandon Tartikoff, the late Brandon Tartikoff, who ran NBC Entertainment at that time, again, during a glorious era. You think of what he oversaw and all the gigantic hits uh, on NBC in the 80s and 90s. And they weren't just hits. They were quality programs that, that made a, uh, an impression on the history of the medium. And so Dick and Brandon said, 1.30 is open. There used to be a show called Overnight that the great Linda Ellerby had anchored. It was kind of a 
an irreverent news show, but that show had ended and the one thirty slot was open and they said, see what you can do with it. And that's what happened. Did you ever hear uh, what Johnny Carson thought of your show? And did you ever have uh, occasion to run into Johnny when you were taping later in L.A. or uh, just at maybe a network function or something of that ilk? Yes. Yes. And um, the first time I had a notion of it, Jerry Seinfeld was on Carson. And apparently he was we taped some shows in advance. He was also going to be on later that night uh, with Letterman in between. And so I had never met or spoken to Johnny, but he's talking to Jerry Seinfeld. And he says, you're on with Bob Costas. And he said some very nice things about me. So he does the sports, but he also does that. And he's, you know, he said some very complimentary things. And I wrote Johnny a note. And I said, I, I still remember it. I haven't thought about it in many, many years till you bring this up. I said, you know, Joe DiMaggio told me once, and this is true. Joe DiMaggio, I ran into him at Yankee Stadium on Old Timers Day. And I introduced myself and he said, oh, Bob, I know who you are. You're very good. I enjoy watching you do baseball games on Saturday afternoon. Well, at that point, I could have died and gone to heaven. Um, and so I said in this note to Johnny Carson, Joe DiMaggio once told me that he thought I was a good baseball announcer. And now you apparently think that I'm doing a good job at 1.30 in the morning. And I put them on the same level, a compliment about baseball from Joe DiMaggio, a compliment about a talk show from Johnny Carson. And then when I did cross paths with him at one of the upfronts that they do to, you know, introduce the season's shows, uh, and he was standing off to the side because he wasn't really that much of a social guy. He was kind of shy. Yeah. Standing off to the side surrounded by people infinitely more famous and talented than me. And I worked up the, uh, uh, the nerve to just kind of come over and say, hello, Johnny. And I put, and I said, Johnny, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate. No, I got it backwards. When I said, hello, Johnny, he said, Bob, thank you for the note. That was classy. So now fast forward a year or two and it's 1992 and Johnny is, wrapping up The Tonight Show. And Ed McMahon and Fred DeCordova had been guests on later, Johnny's uh, producer, Fred DeCordova. Of course. And I said offhandedly, boy, if only once I could be on with Johnny Carson. And DeCordova said, I'll arrange it. So it was April of 92. His last show was in May of 92. And I was getting ready to do the Olympics in Barcelona uh, for NBC. And I was hosting the NBA and the Michael Jordan era. And I happened to be in Los Angeles and I was the third guest that night. I can't remember who the second one was, but the first was Michael Crawford, who then was very famous for being the Phantom of the Opera. And so I came out and the way I look at it, Joe, is this. If you've been around a while, almost anybody has five good minutes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you just whatever, whatever the two or three best stories you've got. This is my one time with Johnny Carson. I'll empty the bucket right here. And it turned out extremely well. And somebody told me that only in the last month or so, the, the kind of clinching story has shown up on YouTube. And, and I found it. And it was just as I remembered it. Because, you know, you've grown up. Johnny Carson is Johnny Carson. You know, no matter how good anybody is today. And there are many people who are really, really talented that are doing late night and have done late night. But... The Tonight Show had such primacy at that time. 
you know, Koppel was great on Nightline and Dick Cavett was great and all the rest. But Johnny Carson was the king. And it just had there, there wasn't five. There weren't 500 choices and all kinds of streaming stuff. So you watched Johnny Carson and you knew that, wow, Don Rickles will be on tonight or Dangerfield will be on or the young Steve Martin or George Carlin will be on. And you hope that this was the night he'd do Karnak or Aunt Blabby or Art Fern in the Tea Time movie. And now I'm sitting next to Johnny Carson, close enough to reach out and touch him. And he's doing all those Johnny Carson things. You know, he's got like a, he's got his pencil and he's wrapping it on the yeah. desk. He's taking a drag on the cigarette when he knows the camera isn't on him and then he sticks it back yeah. in the ashtray. And you know how, how you do it when you're on all these shows, with the exception, I guess, of James Corden. The guest has always sat to the host's right. So you're kind of like this, and the audience is over here, and the host is over here, and you look toward the audience, and maybe you look toward uh, whoever is the, uh, the Andy Richter or the Ed McMahon. You look toward them for a moment, and then you look back at David Letterman or Conan or Leno, whoever it might be. And every time I looked back at Johnny Carson, his eyes were locked right on mine. And I realized that that was part of his genius. If I was among the 5,000 most interesting people he had ever had sit in that seat, I would be doing well. But in that moment, to him, or at least what he wanted to project to me in the audience, I was a very interesting guy. So every time I came back to Johnny Carson, there he was seemingly hanging on my every word. And his laugh was so distinctive that even when the audience laughed, you could hear Johnny's laugh cutting through it. And now you're getting this lift of adrenaline. Oh, my gosh, I'm making Johnny Carson laugh. And the last story I told, which I won't tell here, and it's not politically correct anymore, <laughs> but that was 30 years ago. Not only did he laugh, he threw his head back and leaned back in his chair and said, that is a great, great story. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't know that I could have. I don't know that I had enough material to do it 10 times. But I had a good five minutes and it worked that night. No, we've been talking yeah. a lot about later today and uh, or tonight, whichever you want. So whenever you're listening uh, and later, really, when you think about it, Bob, it was almost like a televised version of the Friars Club because you had everybody from Jerry Lewis to Don Rickles, mm -hmm. Steve Allen, Pat Cooper, Joey Bishop on the show. What were some of your memories of talking with these uh, legends uh, who uh, were not only part of your show, uh, were an indelible part of our great organization, the Friars Club? Well, you know, what the format of later allowed, there was no studio audience. We did a handful of shows with a studio audience out of the hundreds that we did, but by and large, no studio audience. So if a comedian was on, or if somehow I said something funny and people laughed, those were the cameramen, the stage managers, the techs. And as anyone who's been in this business knows, those are earned laughs. These aren't people who have come to laugh. They've come to have a good time. Maybe they've had a few drinks, you know, up, up in the audience. There's a warm-up comic. That's what every other show is like, not that show. So if Rickles got laughs, and he did, if Seinfeld got laughs, and he did, um, they earned those laughs. All those guys earned those laughs. Um, but what you also got was you got a different side of them. Uh, Rickles talked about his, his childhood and the early stages of his career and being a mama's boy and not marrying until he was almost 40 and being afraid that his mother wouldn't approve of Barbara, who of course was his 
loving companion and everything's turned out great. So he was alternately funny, but also reflective. And Jerry Seinfeld wasn't trying all that hard to crack the crew up. He was talking about his craft. And Seinfeld talking about how a joke is constructed is like Ted Williams talking about hitting. You know, uh, I just watched the uh, the George Carlin uh, documentary on HBO. And one of the things that uh, Seinfeld mentions about Carlin is something that two of them had in common, despite all the superficial differences. They were, were and in Jerry's case still is, a master craftsman, so that Carlin was so attuned to language, a single syllable or the placement of a word, the pacing of how a story or a, or a bit or a joke played out was all important to him. Every minute detail. And although Seinfeld's humor is much different, he is very much the same way. And so you got whoever, whoever the guests were, you got them not just talking about the broadest aspects of it, but a lot of the behind the scenes aspects, Rod Steiger talking about how uh, the famous scene in the back of the cab um, and on the waterfront with Marlon Brando was shot. The, the scene in which Brando said, I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. And Steiger talking about how that was shot. Um, just stuff you didn't get anywhere else. And that's not a criticism of other shows, but those guys could have been, and women could have been on other shows a dozen times and you'd get great stuff, but you wouldn't get that stuff. So that was part of what I guess distinguished later in its own little way. I think your brilliance as a talk show host, besides uh, obviously your ability to listen, uh, insightful questions, was your ability to create little moments. You know, things like when you had Siskel and Ebert on, you did the taste mm -hmm. testing of the candy dots from the movie yeah. theater. Of yeah. course, the infamous Mary Lou Henner incident. Uh, what is the secret to creating those great moments on a talk show? I think the willingness to take a chance, because it might not work, <laughs> you know. Uh, the willingness, once you've asked and you've made sure you've taken care of the most essential questions that the audience really wants you to ask, let's see what's down this dark alley or blind alley. Let's let's see what's there. Um, and sometimes it, it turned out to be gold. And sometimes it didn't uh, with with Siskel and Ebert. They had been on together uh, two or three times prior. And now I'm thinking, what haven't we done? Well, everybody who goes to the movies and remember, this is before Netflix and everything else. <clears throat> people went to the movie and before the pandemic. People went to the movies. It was a distinctive experience. And part of that was, what do you want? Are you just a standard person who wants the popcorn or do you want chuckles or do you want dots or do you want raisinets? These are essential movie questions. And there happened to be a theater called the Guild Theater right across the street from 30 Rock. And it turned out that one of our production assistants, Vicki Frank, um, had a, a thing of chuckles in her purse. So she got the chuckles. And then we sent somebody across to get the dots at the Guild Theater. And the, the Ebert claimed that he could identify any chuckle. And we blindfolded him. And he did. He knew which one was green, which one was yellow. But it was even more impressive because Siskel claimed he could do the same thing with dots. And then at the end, 
I took two dots and squished them together. Yeah. Like I squished together a green and a red to see if I could trip them up. And he rolled it around in his tongue and said, this is a combination dot. <laughs> <laughs> so their bona fides in terms of, of being uh, movie mavens was further attested to by that performance. To circle back uh, to the Friars Club a little bit, you have had the opportunity to attend many of the different uh, Friars yeah. testimonials, Billy Crystal in 2018, Don Rickles in 2013. Uh, what stands out to you about these events, and what, what would you say was uh, your favorite of all the Friars events that you've been to over the years? There was an initial roast of Billy in 1992. Yes, Rob that, Reiner was uh, the Bob, uh, roastmaster. Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner was the roastmaster, and that was really funny. There was one where uh, Matt Lauer was roasted, and Tom Cruise had had an on-air tiff with him about Scientology at some point, and Tom Cruise showed up unannounced, and the place went crazy, and he had some good uh, material that he used. Uh, the Rickles, the Rickles roast was half roast and half uh, appreciation because Don was getting toward the end of of his career. Um, and as you know, the the Friars roasts were never quite as raunchy as the Comedy Central roasts, but as the years went on, uh, the barriers came down, and there were a lot of f bombs thrown and a lot of off color stuff I, it wasn't it wasn't jeff ross and gilbert Gottfried, but it got closer to that yeah. do you ever have a hesitation if you're going to speak at something like that to use a four-letter word being you come from broadcasting broadcasters don't have mm -hmm. the uh, they're not afforded the opportunity to use that sort of language yeah at the at the rickles roast in 2013 i dropped an f-bomb and i think just that the fact that it seems so out of place made it funnier uh, the audience seemed to appreciate it. You know, you have to read the room. Uh, will it work in this moment? Uh, and it seemed to. I heard a great story. Uh, I think, I don't know if this was the last time you saw Don Rickles. You were in a restaurant and you ran into Oh, my him. God. Well, what Joe, happened I'm that night? Well, Don was always great to me. And, of course, he was a genuine sports fan. He was really tight with Tommy Lasorda and other sports figures. So that was an immediate connection. And he was also a very good friend of Al Michaels. Um, so some of the dinners I had with Don were with uh, Al and his wife, Linda, uh, and Don and, and Barbara. Uh, so now he's at a restaurant that's frequented by a wide variety of people, but including a lot of show business people um, in, uh, in, in LA. And the way the restaurant is laid out, there's a couple of booths that lead to a hallway uh, where the restrooms are. And so I had no idea that Don was there because he had been there before my party got there. And we were seated in a different part of the restaurant. So now I get up to go to the restroom and Rickles back is to the room. So he can't see anybody except the other three people in his party. And it's like a, a circular booth. And it's, so his back is to the rest of the room, but his, his form was unmistakable. It could be nobody but Don Rickles. And so I come up behind him. I realize it's him. I come up behind him and I put my hand on his shoulder and I bring my head around and I say, Don, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to say hello. And at this point, how the hell old is he? I don't know. He's 90 or whatever he is, 88 yeah. years old. And, and in failing health at that point, Don, I just want to say hello. And he goes, he looks, he goes, I say this as a friend. 
people are getting tired of you. <laughs> Classic ripples. He had, he had done the same thing many years earlier in 1996. He's standing in the lobby of the Regency Hotel on Park Avenue in Manhattan. And in those days, I was commuting between St. Louis and New York. And I had like a permanent room at the Regency Hotel. So I wouldn't have to check in and out. NBC set me up with that. And the Regency then had a very, very small lobby. And he's standing there again with his back to the revolving door with his wife, Barbara, and another couple that I didn't know. And so the same kind of deal. I come up behind him. He had already been on later. We did three shows with him on later. People loved it. So we were acquainted. And I come up and I say, excuse me, Don, I just want to say hello. And again, he has no idea I'm going to be there. He, he looks up and he goes, you, Mel Allen died. He never mentioned you. <laughs> Mel Allen, the legendary voice of the Yankees, had in fact died like two weeks prior to that. You know, so th- his mind was so quick. It was unbelievable. I had the good fortune to see him towards the end. Uh, he was playing mm-hmm. in Valley Forge. And I had the same thing, by the way, where you say the thing about the form. He was standing off to the wing. We were the first people in, in the room. And he's standing. There's like a, a partition in the curtain. And you just see his silhouette there. And yeah. there's no mistaking Don Rickles and his silhouette. It can only be him. Do you ever wish that someone like a Don Rickles or a Frank Sinatra who stuck around for a while, Bob Hope, was like this? You almost wish that sometimes they would step away and we don't have to see, you know, them age. Or are are you glad to see uh, an entertainer stay as long as they wish to stay? Well, you know, I think Don was kind of in a different category because even though physically toward the end, he had difficulty getting around. And you'll notice if he was on with Letterman or something toward the end, he didn't come out um, from behind the curtain. They brought him out during the preceding commercial. And he was already sitting there, but he was still just as good in his own way. Um, Not just because he said funny things, but because the whole idea of Don Rickles was funny. Um, You know, Letterman, unlike Johnny Carson or Jay Leno, Letterman's guests didn't hang around. First guest did his or her bit and then they left and the next guest came. But when Rickles was on, I can recall people like Denzel Washington wanting to stay around, wanting to sit there and just hear the whole thing. And of course, Don was grandfathered in. He got away with stuff that was so far over the line of what's unacceptable now and was even unacceptable then for anybody except him or someone like Gilbert Gottfried or Jeff Ross at a a roast. Um, So he really never lost his fastball. Bob Hope, toward the end, was noticeably slowed down um, and and couldn't really ad-lib much of anything. He always had writers, uh, but he was noticeably slowed down. And I saw Frank Sinatra in 1994 at Radio City Music Hall, and Rickles opened for him. And that was the one time that I met Sinatra because I went backstage and Rickles introduced me to him. Um, And at that point, you know, he's Frank Sinatra for God's sake, so he can do whatever he wants. (laughs) At that point, there were giant teleprompters at the foot of the stage. Um, so in case he forgets the words to my way or, or summer wind or something, which he did. Uh, and when he would pause or stumble a little bit, someone would love yell out from the audience. We love you, Frank. You know, the audience was almost trying to pull him across the finish line. So 
it was poignant, but it wasn't pathetic because he was Frank Sinatra. And that aura still was there. And you could tell that those people had come partly to be entertained, but also to have one last glimpse of something that was a piece of their lives. You know, that he had he had been part of, it's 1994, he could have been part of, of decades and decades of the lives of some of the people, the soundtrack of their life, of many of the people that were at Radio City that night. So even though it wasn't prime Sinatra, it was still something I, glad, I was glad I saw. What do you remember about your encounter with Sinatra when Rickles brings you backstage? I mean, you're meeting the chairman of the board. You know, I, he was a great sports fan. Uh, and I'm sure had I met him earlier, there would have been some kind of conversation. But Rickles said, Frank, you know Bob Costas. And he looked and he kind of nodded and he, oh, hi. And that was it. And we shook hands. There wasn't any conversation. It's still just to be in his presence. I, that That's uh, yeah. something that so many people would have loved to have had the opportunity to do. And you have been uh, so blessed and fortunate to have had uh, in your life and career. But before I let you go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you at least one sports question. But I want to take okay. it a little bit of a different direction. You know, you've covered everything from baseball to golf to boxing. You've done 12 Olympic Games. Is there one sport that you just don't get or that you just don't particularly care for? You say, why do I got to talk about this again? Um, well, there are some sports at the Olympics that if they weren't part of the Olympics, <laughs> you wouldn't pay much attention to. <laughs> but they all come under the umbrella of the Olympics, so they're all elevated by this great global get-together and uh, the majesty of the Olympics at its best. There are always issues that... Uh, plague the Olympics, but at its best, there's something deeply meaningful and there's a connection to history. So that elevates. You know, I used to joke, and then I found out that some people don't appreciate the joke, but um, I used to joke that, you know, someone, someone who, uh, someone who meddled in synchronized swimming gets exactly the same medal that Jesse Owens got. <laughs> In 1936, you know, or the race walker from Romania gets the same medal that Michael Phelps got if he wins the gold. Uh, and I think it was 92 in Barcelona um, where they showed a snippet of race walking, maybe two minutes of it in prime time. And then they came back to me on camera and I said, you know, a race to see who can walk the fastest is a little bit like a contest to see who can whisper the loudest. <laughs> What's the point? Now, the, the people on the set, you know, they're laughing, right? Friends of mine told me they thought it was funny. But there's a small group, there's a small race-walking community. I mean, I knew it was a big deal in Eastern Europe. I didn't think it was that big a deal anywhere in the United States. But even if there's only like 500 of them, they're passionate about it. And they let me know about it. And, you know, you have a maybe a tendency, or I do, to occasionally be a wise guy. But one of the things you have to be respectful of is that for many athletes and for many sports, the Olympics is the one time that that sport or that athlete is front and center. It's not like just another baseball game or another basketball or football game. There'll be another one next week and whatever. It'll also be on network television. It's, it's different. And so while I'm never going to be entirely somber, uh, I always thought that a little bit of levity was appropriate. Uh, at the same time, I tried to be as respectful as I could. 
Well, that's a good attitude to have, and uh, clearly uh, your professionalism shows you don't get 28 Emmys by uh, being a slouch uh, in the professionalism department. But uh, let me say to conclude, uh, what is it that keeps the Friars Club going after over 100 years? The history of it. It's the history of it. You know, you can you can feel it. You walk in and you feel it right away. Uh the William B. Williams room used to be immediately to your left, a little small area with a bar. Then they tra- changed it. William B. Williams in death is now upstairs. And Billy, it's the Billy Crystal room because Billy's a little bit more contemporary. <laughs> He's still out there and, and doing stuff. But then you look on the wall, you know, who are the past abbots and deans? And there's Sinatra's name and Jerry Lewis and Alan King. And, you know, it, it's like it, it's a history of a certain slice of television uh, and, and of comedy, of show business, really, not so much television, of show business overall. Uh, and you go into the dining room and, yeah, there's there's a, a drawing or, or photos of giants of comedy. But then there are also people who just have the little niche. Oh, there's Corbett Monica. I remember <laughs> him. I saw him on the Ed Sullivan show. You go upstairs and you can you can shoot pool. And isn't there a, is the, the the billiard room is named for Ed Sullivan, isn't it? The billiard room is now the William P. Williams room, the card room, oh. is the Ed Sullivan room. There you go. There you go. There you go. Um, and Gilbert Gottfried, rest his soul. Yes. Um, used to do his show uh, upstairs, his podcast, his amazing colossal podcast uh, upstairs there with uh, Frank Santo Padre as his uh, his Ed McMahon, for uh, lack of a better great show. Comparison. Fabulous show, uh, you know. And I still, I was on it. I don't know, three, four years ago, and I still hear about it from people. You know, it, it, Gilbert, Gilbert did things that Bob Hope would never do. Yeah. that's obvious. <laughs> but Gilbert understood that in some way he's part of that lineage anyway. You know, um, among comics, Joe, if you've got the goods, they recognize that. You know, you earn. Comics don't like knee slap over nothing you got to earn it you know and and if and and if if no matter what your approach is if if you've got the goods they recognize it well bob all i can say is thank you so much for your time how did i do you did great you did great you know first of all i can tell that you have an honest interest in the subject matter but also you. you did you did your research and you don't have to know everything about a subject. It's impossible or everything about a particular guest, but you got to know at least the broad outlines of it because tossing those things out there is what gets a conversation going. And then once the conversation is going, that's when some more spontaneous things can happen. Some things you might never have prepared for, but if you win the respect of the guest by showing that you're prepared and you're honestly interested, then Good things happen because then the guest generally tends to open up on their own and you go to places that you couldn't have anticipated. And if you're nimble enough, as you apparently are, to to follow wherever it goes, that that's when the good stuff happens. Well, Bob, you're too kind to say that, and it, it certainly means a lot coming from a, a, one of my heroes. And uh, I, all I can say is I, I do hope we can talk again soon and meet one day soon because this has just been an absolute delight for me. Joe, I look forward to meeting you. Maybe we'll have lunch at the Friars. I would love that, please. We can sit in the, in the Henny Youngman table or at the <laughs> Henny. 
Corbett Monica yeah. needs his table. I love that you mentioned him because nobody talks about Corbett anymore. <laughs> Sandy Barron. You know all those guys from Broadway Danny Rose? Yes. Which is a, a, a great Woody Allen film, Broadway Danny Rose. You've been so generous to me, and uh, thank you for making yourself accessible to me. Joe, I was happy to do it. I hope our paths cross. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.